Wonderful. Thanks, Johnny, for reading. Um, my name is Chris Evans. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'm the assistant pastor here. Do keep um, your Bible open, uh, and we're going to uh, have a look at that now. Um, why don't I pray for the Lord's help? Father God, we uh, thank you for uh, this series in Genesis, and we thank you for all you have taught us um, so far about your grace and your purposes. And Lord, we do pray now as we uh, prepare our hearts uh, to hear from you, that you would uh, soften them, that you would help us to hear um, the words uh, that you have uh, to say to us. We pray that by your spirit, uh, you would be shaping us, transforming us more into the image of your son this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been uh, on a journey that changed your life. Um, maybe you went somewhere and you saw something incredible, um, like going on safari or seeing Mount Everest or, or swimming with dolphins, something like that. Um, perhaps you went somewhere and your eyes were, were opened up to more sobering realities, poverty, corruption or, or, or war, and, and kind of coming home, you, you couldn't see the world in the same way. Um, I remember um, seeing the, the Dachau concentration camp and, and kind of walking around there and, and coming home did, did feel different in some sense. It had an effect on me. Um, maybe you've been on a journey that was relationally significant, uh, some sort of friendships or, or spiritually significant for you. Journeys can be life-changing, um, but what doesn't normally prove life-changing for people on any kind of journey is is your stop at the service station. Now, I know some people really like service stations in here. I've had conversations about service stations with people in here, but that's not normally the life-changing moment. But today, we see that, that Jacob, he's beginning this journey, uh, which is gonna take him away from the promised land for a time in search of a wife, and all the action takes place at a pit stop. And yet, it is at this moment, it is at this point that the journey becomes life-changing. Just what is the big deal about this overnight stop? Well, if you just turn the page for a moment back to, to last week's story, in the middle of Jacob's deception of Esau, um, his father asks him, how have you come back with the game so, so quickly? In 27 verse 20, he replies, the Lord your God, that's Isaac's God, was favorable to him. At this point, Isaac's God seems to be different to Jacob's God in, in some sense. Now flick back to our passage today. Have a look at uh, verse 21. Jacob prays to the Lord and says, The Lord, my God. At this pit stop, we have seen the move from your gods to my gods in Jacob's heart. This is the, the biggest journey that Jacob could ever undertake the biggest journey that anyone could undertake. Because it's not just a journey for Jacob, it's a journey for all of us. Maybe you've been coming along to Redeemer for a while and you would say that Jesus is, is your God and not my God. Um, I wonder what it might take for you to make that journey. Well, let's dive in and, and see what it took um, for Jacob. We're going to see he's confronted by, by three things. Firstly, the reach of God's grace, the promise of God's presence, and then the transformation of belonging to God. And you should have those points in your, your handout. 
Firstly, he's confronted by the reach of God's grace. Just before our passage today, we see Rebecca at the end of chapter 27. She's starting to worry. Why? Well, Esau, having been conned out of his birthright and the, the promises of God to him, he is plotting how to dispose of his brother Jacob. You can kind of imagine the scene around the family mealtime. Once mum and dad are, are away or doing the washing up or something, um, Esau kind of looks over, passively aggressive in the eye, kind of clicking his knuckles or kind of pointing a gun to the hand. They didn't have guns then, maybe a bow and arrow. You know, it, it's this sort of, sort of thing going on. So what's she going to do? Well, she reminds Isaac of the pain that Esau's wives are causing at home, kind of hoping that will give him a nudge to, to send Jacob off to find a wife from home. And it does the trick. And in the first five verses, we, we see that Isaac does exactly that. Uh, and we're going to spend most of our time in, in the second half. We get to verse 10, and Jacob, he's on his way. But the setting feels pretty hopeless. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. It's dark. He's alone. Behind him, he has a, a dangerous and pretty dubious past. And in front of him, an uncertain future. And if that's not vulnerable enough, he's also asleep. Anything could happen to him. And yet it is at this point, at his weakest, at his lowest, that God chooses to reveal himself to Jacob because God wants Jacob and us to marvel at the reach of his grace. I'm going to ponder two things about the reach of God's grace that we see here. Firstly, that blessing comes through grace and not grasping. Blessing comes through grace and not grasping. You kind of were to kind of flick back and see when Abraham gets the promises from the Lord and when Isaac does, neither of them get dreams like we get here. And yet Jacob does get a dream. And I think that means this picture, this dream is significant for, for the words that, that go with it. Um, have a look, verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. We'll come, come to the angels a little bit later. But have a think for a minute about this stairway. Or it could be kind of a, a tower. It seems to be described in a particular way. Where has it come from? Well, we're told it is resting on the earth, as if it's come down from the heavens. It's not extending out from the earth. So it's kind of a little bit more of, of, of a spaceship than, than a crane, if that's not too irreverent a, a way of putting it. I wonder why that might be important. Well, get your Genesis spectacles on. I wonder, have we come across in Genesis a story uh, before of a structure that reaches between earth and heaven? Well, back in Genesis 11, Mankind said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Back then, they tried to build a tower which reached to the heavens. Uh, so it was more of a crane and less of a spaceship. Um, they were looking for security, for significance by their own means. 
Babel, it was called, is a place of grasping. And as we look in Jacob's backstory, we see that there is something of Babel in his heart, isn't there? He might treasure the promises of God, but how does he try and get them? He grasps. So he lies, he cheats, he steals. Babel is a place of grasping, but Bethel is a place of grace. It is what he calls in verse 17, the gate of heaven. At Bethel, the blessing of heaven comes down to earth. It is not grasped from earth, no, it is given from heaven. And what is true for the blessings that are given to Jacob is true for us today. But unlike Jacob, we're not waiting for, for a dream to teach us this. No, in the Lord Jesus, God has reached down in grace to bless the earth. Jesus is the gracious answer to our futile grasping. We get to John's gospel thousands of years later, and Jesus picks up this very dream that Jacob has. And he says these words, this is at the end of John chapter 1, verse 51, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on not a stairway or a tower, but the Son of Man. Jacob called this place Bethel. That was the house of God. That was the gate of heaven. It was like a kind of prototype for the temple, the place you would go to meet God, where heaven and earth met. But Jesus says, now he has come, the place to meet God, the place where heaven reaches down to earth is in him. We cannot grasp the blessings of heaven from earth. No, blessing comes through grace and not grasping. So that means our, our good deeds, our Sunday attendance, our serving coffee, even our preaching can't earn us the blessing of God's salvation. But how precious is it, if nothing we can do can earn it, that God generously gives us what we cannot earn in Christ, and that we can never grasp anything that is greater than what he has already given us. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Christians have every spiritual blessing, or every heavenly blessing, if you like. Where is it? It is in Christ. And how do they have it? Well, a, a chapter later, he says, it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, not from yourselves, is a gift of God, not by works or by grasping, so that no one can boast. Blessing comes through grace and not grasping. So for Jacob, saying, moving from your God to, to my God is because of the Lord's kindness, not his cunningness. And for us too, Jesus becomes my God, not just your God, when we realize that we are dependent upon him for our salvation. And that is deeply humbling, that all we can do is cast ourselves upon him, and yet we do so upon the one who has promised mercy. So blessing comes through grace, not grasping. But the second thing about the reach of God's grace is that that grace is God reaching out to us at our worst. I wonder, when the Lord now speaks in, in the dream, I wonder whether Jacob was worried what was going to come out of his mouth. Firstly, the Lord identifies himself. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. 
at that point, maybe he thinks, oh, crumbs, what have I done? What's going to come out of his mouth? Is he going to say, you horrendous boy, you cheating scoundrel, because of your lies, your deception, I am going to sentence you? Well, no, that isn't what we read, is it? He carries on in verse 13. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, not just to the west, to the east, not just to the west and the east, the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. It's pretty much a rerun of what God said to Abraham back in chapter 13, if you want to have a look. God involves Jacob when he seems at his very worst in his plans for humanity, his plans to bless the world. And compared to Abraham and Isaac, they get the promises, and when we kind of come across them quite quickly, we get a lot of backstory about Jacob. I wonder why. Is, is that to show us what a fine specimen of a man he is? No, it's to show us what a wretch he is. And that despite the scheming and the grasping and the lies, he is not beyond the reach of God's grace. I wonder if you ever feel beyond the reach of God's grace, burdened by guilt that you are too far gone, shame, or maybe just insignificant in God's world and his purposes, you know, a little blip on the radar. Well, we need to remember Jacob to be confronted by the reach of God's grace, just like he was. God reached into the mess of his life and brought him into relationship with him. He involved him in his glorious purposes to bless the world. And though we are at a different stage in salvation history, God offers to do the same to us. We heard earlier, Johnny uh, and Charlie and Amy, uh, they've been out in Exeter, bringing blessing to the world by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, being involved in God's purposes as his people. And when we see God responding to a rebellious world, what do we see? Well, we see him sending his one and only son. When the world is at its worst, the place where we see the reach of God's grace most is in the Lord Jesus, even more so than in Jacob. We look to the cross, we see his reach is wide to deal with our sin. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. When did he show us grace? When we were dead in sin. Why? Because of his great love for us. Some of us, by kind of natural temperament, might well find the grace of God in Christ almost too good to be true. Feelings of, of guilt and shame, they speak more loudly in our minds and our hearts than the gift of forgiveness. Um, one of the um, guys who's written a commentary on Genesis, he's got a great name, Bruce Waltke. He, he, um, he said this about this dream. Jacob's dream isn't a morbid review of his shameful past. It's a presentation of an alternative future. I think that's very precious. God doesn't show up to Jacob and kind of beat him round the head with his failures. 
Amazingly, he shows him the plan that he wants to involve him in. And that doesn't mean that there isn't room for acknowledging and confessing sin to the Lord, but that the aim of God reaching out to us in grace is to bless us and not to burden us. When we come to him in humble repentance and faith, we can know we are forgiven, welcomed, cleansed, and loved. And yet sometimes that very sin the Lord invites us to bring to him and to, to deal with at his cross, it can be the thing which causes us to hold back, a bit like kind of avoiding the doctor because you don't want to have to take your clothes off. Well, one hymn writer put it like this. Um, I'm just going to come up on the screen. Forgiveness we have had before from sins and stubborn hearts of stone, and yet we are burdened now by more, and shame would warn us from his throne. And if that is true, then we must keep on singing, but he is faithful to forgive. So let us humbly lay our sins before his cross and crucify them all. We'll stand accused by them no more. As we see the sin of Jacob at his worst, as our sin is uncovered, so also we see the grace of God's magnified. For Isaac's God to become Jacob's God, he has to be confronted by the reach of God's grace. The Lord has to meet him at his worst. And that is true for us. But what assurance does Jacob have that these blessings are going to come good? Will this journey really change his life? Well, our second point, he is confronted by the promise of God's presence. This is mostly having a look at verse 15. Um, there are many reasons why it might seem hard to believe that this is really going to happen. I mean, just remember, he's got problems at home. Does he really want to go back to the land? He, he, might, he might get shot with a bow and arrow from, from Esau. He, he doesn't have a, a wife, let alone children. How does he know that these obstacles are going to be overcome? Well, God gives Jacob a promise. And verse 15 is so precious, isn't it? He says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I think uh, I'm not really a tattoo person, but if I was going to get a tattoo... This would be pretty high on the list. It's a great promise, isn't it? But notice, what doesn't he promise? He doesn't say that this is going to be easy. He doesn't say this is going to be a walk in the park. If you know what lies ahead in the story of Jacob, it will be long. It will be hard. There will be 20 years of hard work, laboring under a tricky uncle, and lots of family strife. No, he doesn't promise ease or speed, but he does promise that he'll be present, that God will be with him wherever he goes. And he does promise, he seems to presuppose that he's going to come good on all the other promises, the land, the people, that the blessing. Now Jacob might not quite know how God is going to bring all this about, but he knows that God has promised it and that God will be with him through it. And remember, this promise isn't just some words on a page. It's backed up by a vision of the whole spiritual realm of angels going up and down and the splendor of the Lord himself. I don't know about you, when I think of the, the presence of God being with me wherever I go, 
I too easily kind of look around and I feel, I, well, I can't see anything and it's, it's easy for it to sort of feel lesser because of that. But the Lord wants Jacob to remember this promise along with this picture and for him to have courage and assurance that the whole spiritual realm is at the Lord's fingertips to help him. He'll need it because it's going to be a long haul. And although we haven't had this kind of dream or vision for ourselves, I think the Lord wants us to go away with this sense of scale of the power of his presence. It is something that rings true for us. The psalmist um, picks up this idea a, a few times. Psalm 91, he says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The Lord has given the church many promises as well about what he's going to do in the present and the future. And just like Jacob, we might not quite know how all of them are going to get worked out or it might feel confusing in the moment. How how is he going to bring good out of this pain? How is he going to bring hope out of this despair? How is he going to bring healing out of my hurt? But like Jacob, we also have the promise of God's presence to sustain us. And this promise runs through the Bible like a stick of rock. If, if you are feeling that God's promises feel confusing or murky this morning, then this is one that the Lord does give you to cling on to, that he is present with you now, with you at home, at work, with the kids, in the office, in the playground, with others on your own, in the library, when you're revising, when you're washing dishes or cleaning nappies. At all those times, there is a reality of power and protection that you cannot see with your eyes, which is so real and so great, and he longs for each one of us to know the comfort of that presence. Let me read uh, these words. Maybe this is famous Psalm 23. These could be, this could be a great verse to call to mind uh, in some of those moments. Verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the New Testament, hundreds, thousands of years later, shows us God present with us in a new way, in the Lord Jesus. When Jesus is born, what is he called? Emmanuel, God with us. That's at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells us, and uh, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And even though he ascends to the Father, he has given us his spirit dwelling in our hearts. For Jacob, your God becoming my God meant, firstly, he's confronted by the reach of God's grace and then encouraged and supported by the promise of God's presence. But being confronted by those things isn't quite enough. No, he has to respond, uh, just as we must as well. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is an act of responding, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith 
and are saved. Well, how does Jacob respond to these encounters? Well, he prays back the very truths that God has just given him. In verse 20, if God, or, or literally since God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, since all those things are true, then the Lord will be my God. God's grace, God's presence might meet us at our worst, but it never leaves us there. This is a journey which changed Jacob's life, and it can change ours too. Because at this point we see, when the Lord becomes his God, we see, thirdly, the transformation of belonging to God. Uh, and in these few verses, we just see hints of a different Jacob. Uh, the Jacob who says, my God, not your God. Um, one hint is, is his words. He shows awe and, and praise as he speaks. He speaks truth and not tall tales. Verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place. I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. He fears the Lord. He, he doesn't fear Esau in the same way anymore. He fears the Lord. We also see not just his words, but his actions. They're full of devotion and not just deception. Verse 18, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he placed under his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Now, this all sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it? A bit foreign, um, but I don't think it's as strange as we might think. I wonder, have you ever kind of been to a famous monument um, and kind of picked up a, a miniature of it uh, and kind of gone home? Um, when I was little, uh, I had in my bedroom, I had this kind of, little, oh, you don't really need to know, some shelves on the wall, and on the shelves on the wall by my bed, um, I had a little statue of the Eiffel Tower and the Leaning Tower uh, of Pisa, and two holidays we'd been on, two, two things that we'd seen. And I think a similar thing is going on here. Jacob is making a little miniature of his dream. Uh, the stone is put up on end to, to make like the stone tower staircase. Uh, and why is the oil put on the top? Well, all over the Old Testament, oil is used to denote kind of holiness and blessing. And here, oil comes from the top and flows down. Just like in the dream, blessing comes from the Lord who is at the top. It is an act of worship. It is making a statement about what happened here, about the grace of God to him. So his words, his actions, but also he prays. And he commits to be very generous in response to how generous the Lord has been. Verse 21, the Lord will be my God. Verse 22, and this stone that I have set up here as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now that might not sound that unremarkable if you don't know Jacob. But if there's one thing we do know about Jacob, he is not like that grandparent who kind of slips you a five pound note when no one's looking. He is a grasper, not a giver. And yet encountering God's grace and God's presence has begun a work of change in his heart, where he is now willing to give a tenth of his possessions and to use up his store of oil, probably one of the few things he had with him on the trip for the Lord. Though God's grace reaches to us in our worst, the Lord is not content to leave us there, but to transform us into those who reflect 
his image, just as we were made to. And we begin to see something of that in Jacob, a child who begins to bear the family likeness of his savior. And Jacob shows us that though that no one can encounter God's grace and God's presence and remain the same. That belonging to God, being involved in his purposes, it transforms us far more than a safari trip or even a trip to a concentration camp. We receive a new identity. And as we live in the light of his grace and his presence, who we are, who we belong to, works its way out in our lives. We are transformed by belonging. And at times, maybe we can think about this um, too much. We're very introspective. We, we look at our lives and sometimes we can despair, can't we, at how little change we see. We hear the Lord address us from his word and as we try and live that out in, in the week, we're just frustrated by our failures. We need to remember Jacob, he is far from perfect and change is very slow. The work will not be complete in him or in us, this side of the new creation. We need to remember God's grace is greater than our sin. And that the God who saves us by grace transforms us also by grace. But at times, we can also think about this too little. We can look at our lives, well, hardly at all. After hearing God speak to us, we can... Just let it drift into the past of another week and, and not really reflect on how what we've heard should change how we live. We can sometimes distort God's grace to, to kind of minimize how significant our sin is and forget that he's saved us to be holy, to reflect his godliness. We can, in a sense, that call that Jesus makes to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him, it can become a very distant thing and not a daily thing. If you're anything like me, um, the Christian life feels a bit of a yo-yo between some of those two extremes. But the answer to both of them is the journey that we've seen today. It is to be confronted afresh by the reach of God's grace and the promise of his presence. Because it is those two things that show us that we belong to the Lord and how we belong to the Lord and our security in Jesus. And as we see that, we see the way of transformation. It's a journey that changed Jacob's life. And as we encounter that grace, that presence, it's also a journey that can transform ours too. Let's take a moment and then we'll, we'll pray that it would do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, precious story, this precious encounter with you, and for what it reveals about your graciousness towards us. Lord, we praise you for the grace that we see in the Lord Jesus, that he uh, came to seek and to save uh, not those who are sorted, but those who are lost, those who stumble, those who need you. And we humbly come before you as we have already done this morning, and confess that, that we need your loving kindness, that we cannot come before you 
apart from in Christ and knowing his mercy. We praise you for him. We praise you that in him we are made new, we are washed clean, and we can come into your presence. And we thank you that it is that presence that we have both now and forevermore. Please assure us of your presence with us in the highs and the lows that we may be going through at the moment. And Father, please, by your Spirit, work in our hearts so that we might indeed be changed, that we might live out that calling to be holy and blameless. Lord, that we might bring you glory and that we might know the joy of reflecting at something more of our Saviour to the watching world. In his name we pray. Amen.